Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And today we're speaking with filmmaker Henri Pardo about his great documentary, Dear Jackie, which is part of the Real World Film Festival. Let's take a listen to a clip. Dear Jackie, I have always respected and admired you. Well, I met Jackie Robinson here. Because he played for what? Montreal Royals. Brother from the U.S. breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. You made the impossible seem possible in a segregated North America by showing everybody a glimpse of what everyday life could be like. Black and white people working and living side by side. The film is a lens into Montreal's black community through the experience of legendary baseball player Jackie Robinson. While he's mainly known for breaking the color barrier in the United States, he also played for the Montreal Royals baseball team before joining the majors in 1947. The film also pays tribute to the black community of Montreal and its resilience in the face of racial discrimination, as well as the community bonds which were formed during Jackie Robinson's time in that city and which continue to this very day. Now, this is a really interesting documentary, very different way of discussing both Jackie Robinson and the black community of Montreal. What did you think of it? I thought the approach was really good because it's in the form of a letter, kind of like a love letter. And we speak to Henri about why he approached to tell the story that way. What I didn't know, I I mean, I think back to the history that we learned in school. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I've lived in Ontario most of my life. Um, but this is Canadian history, and I knew about Jackie Robinson playing in Montreal, but I didn't know like the levels to it, like the layers to it, and the injustices that that community uh, experienced. Um, so I thought it was super informative, and it's a great uh, testament to Henri that he told this story because that's legacy building. Yeah, and Henri's got such a depth of knowledge as well about the topic and. Uh, not just about Jackie Robinson, but about the uh, city's black community. And actually, one thing we, we discuss in the in the interview you'll hear is uh, uh, he talks about the jobs that were available to black people in the 40s. And one of them was a train porter. I don't know if you knew this, Nam, but my grandfather and my great uncle were both porters. I didn't know that. Yeah, they both worked for, uh, uh, I think, Canadian National Railway and Canadian Pacific Railway. And we actually found the hat that <laughs> belonged to my hat. yeah that belonged to my great uncle and and you'll hear Henry basically discuss uh, the kinds of treatment that they received and I think and certainly my great uncle and my grandfather were the uh, recipients of a lot of racism at that time but yeah I, I really appreciated uh, Henry's knowledge about uh, that time in uh, Montreal's history and and current events as well right yeah um, just to see what's going on in Quebec and the politics uh, I would I, I think the favorite part of me for this documentary was not just the history but also the resilience and mm. I know that word it's just so cliche but um, when you watch the trials and tribulations that the people in the community went through and they persevered um, it really is it, it makes me think of oh this should be a movie 
Definitely. And, well, we, and, we, and we should also just mention that, you know, we spoke to Henri about a day after the Quebec election. So you might hear a little bit of a dated reference to that, but that's all that is. And my audio was really bad. I'm you, so sorry. Your audio was a little, uh, unfortunately, there were some technical issues. It wasn't your fault. It was just the microphone at the time. But, but we hope you enjoyed happen. the conversation anyway. Definitely. Here's our conversation with Henri Pardot. Henri Pardot, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's really nice to have you on. Um, the documentary is titled Dear Jackie, and you yeah. narrate it in the form of a letter to baseball great Jackie Robinson. Why did you want to approach the documentary this way? Um, it's all about um, sort of like connecting in an intimate way with our ancestors. Um, we often talk about them and, and, and stuff like that. And I wanted to be, to be it, uh, more, um, realist, you know, like really getting in touch with them. And it gives this tone about just having a sit down with a brother and a sister and telling it as it is, uh, no filters really be frank about what's going on in the community. Well, you know, Jackie Robinson, I mean, for many of us who are familiar, he played in the United States uh, in the 1940s. I think for the was the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'm not a baseball guy, so <laughs> I, I, I wasn't either. I wasn't either. Yeah, it was the the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was the Brooklyn Dodgers before they moved to LA. They moved to yeah. LA. yeah, but yeah. He, he he before that he was in in uh, the United States. He played for uh, teams there uh, in the 1940s, and this is the you know peak of the segregation era. But then when he moved to Montreal. Uh, he was actually cheered by audiences. So I'm wondering what kind of myth that created for what life was like for black Canadians in Montreal. Yeah. And that's the whole thing, right? I mean, when I started to do some research on little Burgundy, uh, that was my main interest. It was really that neighborhood of, of black folks and how they, they grew up and how they are today. And, um, when I learned about Jackie Robinson, there was this, this, this glorified thing about his coming here, right? Everything was possible. If a black man uh, who was segregated in the States came here and was accepted by everybody, things were done and things were okay. Um, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. It was more of a myth, right? So Montreal, the province of Quebec and Canada also really glorified that moment of Jackie Robinson being cheered by everybody. You know, there's even this, this, this thing about it was the first time that a white crowd chased a black man to celebrate him, you know, instead of lynching him or whatever, <laughs> like down South. So the city was very um, happy about these moments and uh, Canada really uses this myth to sort of like, separate themselves from the states we're not like our bad neighbors from the south uh but things are not exactly how 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 it is you know um with with jackie um the 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 historian uh, dorothy williams really talks about that myth and the exceptionalism around this man and how all of a sudden he were represented a race I, he was actually called the race man you know he was running he was playing for all of us and suggested that if he made it and he was accepted, all Black people were living the same truth. And that's not the case. Uh, you mentioned a few things that I wanted to follow up on. Uh, you mentioned Little Burgundy. And this was a neighborhood in Montreal where uh, Black people lived. And um, you mentioned, you know, Jackie Robinson was this exceptional athlete. Uh, Colin mentioned if, when he played in the U.S., 
say Louisville, for example, he was booed, but when he was in Montreal, they were cheering for him. Um, mm-hmm. And there was this disconnect of what life was like in Montreal, in Canada, for Black Canadians. Um, was Jackie Robinson aware of how other Black people were treated in a city that embraced him? That's a really good question. I think the brother, first of all, had a job to do. You know, he was he was the race man. He was that first brother to break the color lines in Major League Baseball. And yes, he was booed in certain stadiums, but it was like death th- threats and insults. And there's even this thing about Rachel, his 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 widow, trying to make her back bigger as she was sitting down in the audience to sort of protect her man from all these 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 people trying to really kill him you know, in a certain way. When Jackie would come back with the Montreal Royals to their home base, to Montreal, to play, everybody was extremely insulted by the way he was um, himself insulted in the States or in other cities. So they really protected him. But um, it wasn't the case for, for, for Black people. First of all, they could only really stay in one neighborhood, Little Burgundy. There was sort of this unauthorized or un- uh, an unofficial uh, thing about um, segregation. There was a gentleman's agreement uh, between all the landlords to not accept Black people in their neighborhoods and only in Little Burgundy. That's where 90% of Black people stayed uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so it was really it was really different. Going around the city was hard. Uh, getting jobs was hard. Um, and they had to build a lot of the stuff themselves. You mentioned that uh, landlord um, gentleman agreement where black people would not be able to live anywhere. What they were doing, I guess, wasn't against the law. Um, Segregation in Canada actually had its legal precedence in Montreal in 1936, 10 years before Robinson played in Montreal. Can you tell us a bit more about um, the Christie versus York case and the ripple effect it had for the community there, the black community? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. Christie was um, a Montreal Canadiens fan, like uh, like we are a lot of us in, in the city. And uh, the form is right uh, where they played right in the middle of, of downtown, just uh, north of Little Burgundy. So it, he had the, the usual thing of just going to see a game and staying at the tavern in the same building to have a beer and stuff like that. But one day he did it with with, with his friends that were dark-skinned and they weren't allowed in. So he contested that with the backing of the community, of course, all the way to federal court, I think, and um, lost. So that was the precedent. All of a sudden, um, uh, owners, shop owners, could say no to Black people strictly because they were Black. So, yeah, that had uh, a lot of, uh, of effect in, in Montreal and in Canada also. I think, if I'm not mistaken, about 30 years after that, or even more, like in the 70s or, or 80s, um, the laws changed. Uh, the government of Trudeau came into power, and I think they used that case sort of like to help um, La Charte des Droits et Libertés. I forget the name in... in um, in, in English, um, but that whole Trudeau movement about what happens in a bedroom stays in the bedroom, um, and also about race and stuff like that, how we had to get along. So it sort of like swept it away. But then again, the last segregated school in Quebec was in it closed in 1983, I think. That's fascinating to think it was that long. Yeah. Yeah. Long, that long yeah. Ago. yeah, exactly. 
I want to ask you a little bit about what life was like for Black Montrealers. Um, what kind of jobs were available to them back then? The job that was respected and regular job, but, but still very hard, was being a porter on trains. So for the men, it was being a porter. And for the women, it was basically working in Westmount for NDG uh, as a maid or uh, taking care of kids, of white people, uh, of their homes and stuff like that. So those were the main jobs that were steady. Um, but being a porter meant traveling 20 days a month, um, 15 hour days, uh, being very close to false sexual um, uh, aggression accusations um, that they had to go through. So it's very, very delicate to navigate in these waters and to be able to, to live with this pressure of just being seen as a boy. You know, they were all called George. They were all like these kids, basically, and they had not a lot of rights. Later on, they developed a union to protect themselves, but that sort of backfired and sort of even kept him more into a smaller um, space. But apart from that, it was just working, you know, finding work where you could as a mechanic or, you know. But it was really hard for a lot of people coming from the Caribbean that were either doctors or engineers or lawyers that came into town and didn't have, ha have access to that, those types of jobs, you know. Uh, they had to bring themselves down and be a porter or be a mechanic and stuff like that. So that's part of that gentleman's agreement also. Don't let them have jobs. Um, I can imagine uh, how demoralizing that is. And even, as you mentioned, with the porters, that they were called George, as if people can't be bothered to even learn your name. You're all George. Um, in yeah. the documentary, you narrate... Um, quote, the only resource we had was each other, and that uh, from churches to community centers to trade unions to schools, we built it all with our bare hands. What role did these places play in sustaining the Little Burgundy community? It was everything. It really was the pillar of the communities. First of all, Union United Church, um, which was built, actually this year we're celebrating the 115th year of its creation. It's the first Black church in Canada. Um, and Union United Church was, was built because uh, the community could not go to church. That was just across the street because it was a white church. So they had to build it themselves. And through that community came other um, organizations like uh, the Colored Women's Club, uh, which was basically the women uh, banding together, taking care of education, um, health, uh, making sure that people had their fridges full and stuff like that and linking to people together. Um, they also helped a lot of the, the news of what was going on in other Black communities uh, get into the community. So their husbands were porters, went around the country, uh, learned of Black movements like the Black Consciousness, um, like uh, the UNIA that had a, a branch in Montreal also. But Clubs like the Colored Women's Club and just women in general help um, the transmission of these the, the that movement throughout the, the local communities, right? And then there's the NCC, the Negro Community Center, which uh, was a branch of the Union United Church. Once again, uh, a pillar of culture, 
where Oscar Peterson learned to play, where Oliver Jones learned to play, uh, where um, um, Daisy Sweeney also um, taught, which is Oscar Peterson's sister, taught a generation, generations of pianists and musicians. Uh, the tap dance culture was really there. Um, so these three uh, pillars, so Union United Church, the UNIA and the NCC were, were made by the community you know, and help from people abroad, of course. Hmm. I kind of want to pivot to talking a little bit about urban renewal. I think there's a, a person in the film who says that the cement that was holding our houses together was now in our lungs. And you talked about the Negro Community Center. I think that was uh, um, eventually, was it, I guess, affected by uh, things like the uh, freeway being built through the, the Little Burgundy. Can you talk just a bit about how that affected the community there? So that's part of the of the displacement of our black bodies throughout the diaspora, right? It's always the same story. It's just moving our souls, our beings, wherever um, out of the way. So for the community, for Little Burgundy, uh, which isn't that big, uh, which was a multiple uh, community, multiple cultural community also, um, they had this urban renewal plan. So just imagine a community, uh, a neighborhood that is not really, um, nobody invested really in it. The, the landlords don't really invest in their buildings. So slowly there is decay. So there has to be some investment in that community to build it up, to keep it together. So instead of doing that and to restore these buildings, they just tore down 70% of the, the neighborhood. And that made place to the highway going right through uh, the, the neighborhood or just on the side of it. So a lot of it just got completely destroyed. Um, and this is at the same time that we had Expo 67, where we're saying, everything was beautiful in 67. We were open to the world. All these beautiful countries came to, to these islands in the river that was were built, you know, Il Saint-Hélène and all that didn't exist. They built islands to have these great uh, palaces <laughs> for other cultures. But at the same time, they completely uh, stomped on other neighborhoods. Now, we have to be clear, though, and honest. I mean, Little Burgundy wasn't the only place where there was urban renewal. But um, as Dorothy Williams points out, is that other communities had other neighborhoods. So you destroy one neighborhood, people will get up and go to another neighborhood, but still be within either a French Francophone, a Francophone uh, neighborhood or an Italian neighborhood or a Greek neighborhood. But black people were cornered in Little Burgundy. So when you destroy that part and you promise them, we'll rebuild and invite you back, where do they go? Well, they, dis they disperse. They go, you know, South shore, a bit East, a bit West and they don't have any more roots, right? So for a couple of decades, people kept coming back. Even though there was this urban renewal, the NCC was still there. So they would come back every Sunday, every Saturday to cultivate this, these links that they had with the people of the Little Burgundy. Um, but eventually uh, the NCC fell down. It had to be destroyed because it was not maintained properly. So that, that soul, that, that linking point, that anchor, disappeared right so when i'm filming in burgundy it's quite extraordinary to be around everybody and just to feel the presence of that building it's not there it's just rubble right now but it's still there with the people 
Um, there's so much in this documentary that I didn't know. Like Little Burgundy was called Harlan North. And watching the documentary, there are moments when I just feel so much despair. But then the people that you were talking to, as they told the history, there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of determination. When one door closed, they found a window. Um, one of the subjects in the doc says Montreal was Las Vegas. Um, and throughout the hardship, the Black Montrealers faced with discrimination. Somehow there was joy. In what ways could the residents of Little Burgundy find joy? You know, it's about it's about family. It's about being together. You know, there's joy when when a kid walks for the first time and is surrounded by loved ones. Um, there's joy when when even though there are hardships, families are progressing. And there's joy when there's there's tap dance. It's that culture that comes from Africa a long ways back, right? So it's a story that is sort of going through throughout North America is that resilience. No matter what happens, we will, we will rise, we will stand up. So I think Black joy is, is there. We're not a people that is just about racism, you know? We go way back. And that's what I learned through Little Burgundy. That's sort of what I knew being Haitian and, you know, Haiti has its problems for, for many decades now. Um, but we're still here. We still have a soul to share and love to share. I didn't know you were Haitian. Stop by saying, sorry. I'll <laughs> <laughs> just shut up. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know if um, about resistance, too, because I think, you know, we're often taught about uh, the American Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement. We don't really learn about that. Uh, what what that struggle was like in Canada, but I'm I, I'm wondering if you if you could talk a little bit about if there was pushback to any of these policies uh, from the Black Montreal community. Oh yeah, definitely. I think I think we're always in a state of of resistance. Um, I mean, there are big things, uh, MLK, Malcolm X, you know, that take a lot of space, and thank God. Um, but there are little acts little actions that matters also. And we can see it through the story of uh, Majiza, who was brutalized by, by the police. She could have just shut up and really just take care of herself. She was really brutalized, like her soul was damaged, but she decided to fight. She's in your film, we should just say. Yes, yes. She's in, in the film and she really... Um, is a person of, of perseverance and determination that decided to go and fight the, um, the, the, the police, but also the city itself. So they're, um, they acknowledge what they've been doing for, for many years. And, and there's a small clip in my film where I, I took uh, records from the CBC and it's just following cops, a particular cop called Dirty Harry, nicknamed Dirty Harry, uh, in the 90s that would just walk into people's apartment, just knock on the door. Who is it? Pizza delivery. They'd open the door and the whole squad would just walk in and turn the, the apartment upside down, hoping to find some crack or whatever. That's the type of rapport that the community had in the 90s. So we're talking about, you know, segregation, the 40s, and then there's the 90s with that case. And a brother got shot. I mean, we're talking a lot about George Floyd, but we had our man also called Pierre Copiana a year before that got shot in his apartment building by, by six cops. And they were not 
um, guilty of anything. And we just had our elections yesterday and La CAC won, right? And they won <laughs> and they do not believe in uh, systemic racism, not at all. So it's the same story being told over and over again. It's, um, it's really sad. Well, you mentioned that um, Quebec just had an election and uh, the government got another majority. In the documentary, we kind of heard a little bit of what's happening in Little Burgundy now that, you know, most people, most Black people who have ancestors who used to live there might not be able to live there anymore because now it's like a million dollars to have a place there. What's Little Burgundy like now? Um, yeah, so the way Little Burgundy was is that, yes, there is the neighborhood and just south of it, there was a, another part of the neighborhood called Griffintown. A lot of warehouses, that's where the ships were built. Uh, where the trains were built also. Um, so all these huge buildings got gentrified and they're beautiful lofts now and condos. And so that pressure is coming from the South. Um, there's a main street called Notre Dame that is full of beautiful shops and expensive restaurants. And slowly they're seeping into the neighborhood, right? And on the North side, well, there was, there, there, there's the highway and slowly that's being pressured also. So yeah, houses are extremely expensive. And at the same time, Little Burgundy is housing like a lot of uh, transition homes, people coming out of prisons or people that have addiction problems. Um, and it's, it's, there's this other type of um, um, logement of housing also for uh, under-income families, but you sort of have to be poor to stay there. So you're either rich to buy these million dollar homes and where you renovate them and make them look really wonderful, or you have to be poor enough to be, I don't know, six and in a small apartment. And as soon as one of the kids gets older enough, there's a, 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 a hike in the, uh, in the rent. So that family has to move again out of the community. So it's, there's that pressure. It's really, uh, it's not easy. Kind of have to wrap up our conversation, but I just sort of want to bring it back to Jackie Robinson a little bit in, in, in uh, quoting you in the film, basically saying about him, they took you for themselves, flaunting their Canadian post-racial utopia and leaving us behind. And I guess I have to ask, you know, we're almost 80 years since he played in Montreal. Um, what is the state of this quote-unquote post-racial society uh, in Montreal? Well, uh, you know, there are stats like we represent 3% of the Canadian population, but we represent 6% of incarcerated men in prisons. So that tells a story, you know, why is that there? And why aren't the government or the citizen trying to change that? Um, it's still hard for somebody who has a master's degree to get the same type of salary as a white person. Um, getting access to housing is still hard. Um, we're, you know, Canada is this weird place where I call it polite racism. You know, it's not, it's not in your face like in the States, but it's so present. So these simple things about health, health for women is, is, is rough. It's the same thing in the States. They walk in and they're not considered or they're overdoped with medication 
Euh, it's hard. Um, um, les accouchements, birthing is, is harder for black women than white women still today. So home, homes, uh, housing, um, jobs, um, all the basic needs are not met. So it's hard to stick around sometimes, you know? Why do you stuck around? Family, you know, my son is here. He's francophone, but he's 22 now. And, um, you know, like after yesterday's elections, I'm like, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard one. It's, it's a hard one. And, and then again, I shouldn't complain. I look at the people, of little Burgundy, they stuck around. They're still there. They're still proud, um, not only resilient, but they're, they're like into their culture. So I'm going to try to keep that in mind and in my heart. Well, Henri, thank you so much for spending some time with us and congratulations on the doc, the history of Little Burgundy. Um, everyone should know it. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Take care. And that's the podcast. Dear Jackie will screen at the Real World Film Festival on Sunday, October 16th and appear on CBC Gem in February 2023. TVO is a proud media sponsor for the Real World Film Festival now in its 22nd year. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. This episode was produced by Nam Kiwanuka and yours truly with editing by Matthew O'Mara. Special thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell. When you said my name, I wanted to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our manager for podcast is Sharayer Tajvidi, and our executive producer for digital is Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening.